Chapter Two of Hints to Pilgrims. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Robert Dunlop. Hints to Pilgrims by Charles Stephen Brooks. I plan a vacation. It is my hope, when the snow is off the ground, and the ocean has been tamed by breezes from the south, to cross to England. Already I fancy myself seated in the pleasant office of the steamship agent, listening to his gossip of rates and sailings, bending over his colored charts, weighing the merit of cabins. Here is one amidships in a location of greatest ease upon the stomach. Here is one with a forward port that will catch the sharp and wholesome wind from the Atlantic. I trace the giant funnels from deck to deck. My finger follows delightedly the confusing passages. I smell the rubber on the landings and the salty rugs. From on top I hear the wind in the cordage, I view the moon, and I see the mast swinging among the stars. Then, also at the agents, for my pleasure, there is a picture of the ship cut down the middle, showing its inner furnishing and the hum of life on its many decks. I study its flights of steps, its strange tubes and vents and boilers. Munchausen's horse, when its rearward end was snapped off by the falling gate, the faithful animal, you may recall, galloped for a mile upon its forward legs alone before the misadventure was discovered. Munchausen's horse, I insist, the unbroken forward half, did not display so frankly its confusing pipes and coils. Then there is another ship which, by a monstrous effort of the printer, is laid in Broadway, where it stacks out top Trinity. I pace its mighty length on the street before my house, and my eye climbs our tallest tree for a just comparison. It is my hope to find a man of like ambition and endurance as myself to walk through England. He must be able, if necessary, to keep to the road for twenty-five miles a day, or, if the inn runs before us in the dark, to stretch it to thirty. But he should be a creature also who is content to doze in meditation beneath a hedge, heedless whether the sun, in faster boots, puts into lodging first. Careless of the hour, he may remark in my sleepy ear, How the shadows lengthen as the sun declines! He must be able to jest when his feet are tired. His drooping grunt must be spiced with humor. When stiffness cracks him in the morning, he can the better play the clown. He will not grumble at his bed or poke too shrewdly at his food. Neither will he talk of graves and rheumatism when a rainstorm finds us unprepared. If he snuffle at the nose, he must snuffle cheerfully and with hope. Wit, with its unexpected turns, is to be desired, but a pleasant and even humor is a better comrade on a dusty road. It endures blisters and an empty stomach. A pack rests more lightly on its weary shoulders. If he sing, he should know a round of tunes and not wear a single melody to tatters. The merriest lilt grows dull and lame when it travels all the day. But although I wish my companion to be of a cheerful temper, he need not pipe or dance until the mists have left the hills. 
does not the shining sun itself rise slowly to its noonday glory a companion must give me leave to enjoy in silence my sullen breakfast a talent for sketching shall be welcome let him produce his pencils and his tablet at a pointed arch or mullioned window or catch us in absurd posture as we travel if one tumbles in a ditch it is but decency to hold the pose until the picture is made but chiefly a companion should be quick with a smile and a nod apt for conversation along the road neither beard nor ringlet must snub his agreeable advance such a fellow stirs up a mixed acquaintance between town and town to point the shortest way a bit of modest gingham mixing a pudding at a pantry window age hobbling to the gate on its friendly crutch to show how a better path climbs across the hills or in a tap-room he buys a round of ale and becomes a crony of the place he enlists a dozen friends to sniff outdoors at bedtime with conflicting prophecy of a shifting wind and the chance of rain a companion should be alert for small adventure he need not therefore to prove himself run to grapple with an angry dog rather let him soothe the snarling creature let him hold the beast in parley while i go on to safety with unsoiled dignity only when arbitration and soft terms fail shall he offer a haunch of his own fair flesh generously he must boost me up a tree before he seeks safety for himself but many a trivial mishap if followed with a willing heart leads to comedy and is adjust thereafter i know a man who merely following an inquisitive nose through a doorway marked no admittance became comrade to a company of travelling actors the play was uncle tom's cabin and they were at rehearsal presently at a changing of the scene my friend boasted to little eva as they sat together on a pile of waves that he performed upon the tuba it seems that she had previously mounted into heaven in the final picture without any welcoming trumpet of the angels that night by her persuasion my friend sat in the upper wings and dispensed flutings of great joy as she ascended to her rest three other men of my acquaintance were caught once between towns on a walking trip in the adirondacks and fell by chance into a kind of sanitarium for convalescent consumptives at first it seemed a gloomy prospect but learning that there was a movie in a nearby village they secured two jetneys and gave a party for the inmates in the church parlor when the show was done they ate ice cream and layered cake two of the men were fat but the third was a slight and handsome fellow i write on suspicion only so won a pretty patient at the feast that on the homeward ride they were rattling in the tonu she graciously permitted him to steady her at the bumps and sudden turns nor was this the end as it still lacked an hour of midnight the general sanitarium declared a roman holiday the slight fellow on a challenge did a handstand with his feet waving against the wall while his knife and keys and money dropped from his pockets the pretty patient read aloud some verses of her own upon the spring she brought down her watercolors and laying a charcoal portrait off the piano she arranged her lovely wares on the top the fattest of my friends also eager to do his part stretched himself heels and head between two chairs but when another chair was tossed upon his unsupported middle 
he fell with a boom upon the carpet. Then the old doctor brought out wine and bohemian glasses with long stems, and, as the clock struck twelve, the company pledged one another's health with hopes for a reunion. They lighted their candles on the landing, and so to bed. I know a man also who once met a sword-swallower at a county fair. A volunteer was needed for his trick, someone to hold the scarlet cushion with its dangerous knives, and zealous friends pushed him from his seat toward the stage. Afterwards he met the Caucasian beauties, and despite his timidity they dined together with great merriment. Then there is a kind of humorous philosophy to be desired on an excursion. It smokes a contented pipe to the tune of every rivulet. It rests a peaceful stomach on the rail of every bridge, and it observes the floating leaves, like golden caravels upon the stream. It interprets a trivial event. It is both serious and absurd. It sits on a fence to moralize on the life of cows, and flings in Plato on the soul. It plays catch and toss with life and death and the world beyond. It sees a significance in the common things. A farmer's cart is a tumbrel of the revolution. A crowing rooster is a chanticleer. It is the very cock that proclaimed to Hamlet that the dawn was nigh. When a cloud rises up, such a philosopher discourses on the flood. He counts up the forty rainy days and names the present rascals to be drowned profiteers in food, plumbers, and all laundrymen. A stable lantern swinging in the dark rouses up a race of giants. I think it was some such fantastic quality of thought that Horace Walpole had in mind when he commended the three princes of Serendip. Their highnesses, it seems, were always making discoveries by accident and sagacity of things which they were not in quest of. For instance, he writes, one of them discovered that a mule, blind of the right eye, had traveled the same road lately because the grass was eaten on the left. At first, I confess, this employment seems a waste of time. Sherlock Holmes did better when he pronounced, on finding a neglected wisp of beard, that Dr. Watson's shaving mirror had been shifted to an opposite window. But doubtless the princes put their deduction to higher use, and met the countryside and village with shrewd and vivid observation. Don Quixote had the same quality, but with more than a touch of madness. Did he not build up the Lady Tolosa out of a common creature at an inn? He sought knighthood at the hands of its stupid keeper, and watched his armor all night by the foolish moon. He tilted against a windmill. I cannot wholeheartedly commend the Don, but— for an afternoon, certainly, I would prefer his company between town and town to that of any man who carries his clanking factory on his back. But also I wish a companion of my travels to be the first time in England, in order that I may have a fresh audience for my superior knowledge. In the cathedral towns I wish to wave an instructive finger in Crypton Isle. Here is a bit of early glass." Here is a wall that was plastered against the plague when the black prince was alive. I shall gossip of scholars in cord and gown, working at their rubric in the sunny cloisters. Or, if I choose to talk of kings and forgotten battles, I wish a companion ignorant but eager for my boasting. It was only last night that several of us discussed vacations. Wyoming was the favorite. 
a ranch with a month on horseback in the mountains, hemlock brews for a bed, morning at five, and wood to chop. But a horse is to me a troubled creature. He stands to too great a height. His eye glows with exultant deviltry as he turns and views my imperfection. His front teeth seem to be made for scraping along my arm. I dread any fly or bee lest it sting him to emotion. I am point to point in agreement with the psalmist. An horse is a vain thing for safety. If I must ride, I demand a tired horse, who has cropped his wild oats and has come to a slippered state. Are we not told that the horse in the Crustaceous Age, I select a large word at random, was built no bigger than a dog? Let this snug and peerless ancestor be saddled, and I shall buy a ticket for the West. But I do not at this time desire to beard the wilderness. There is a camp of Indians near the ranch. I can smell them these thousand miles away. Their beads and greasy blankets hold no charm. Smoky bacon, indeed, I like. I can light pleasurably at the flap of the tent with sleepy eyes upon the stars. I can even plunge in chilly pool at dawn. But the Indians and horses that infest Wyoming do not arouse my present interest. I am for England, therefore, with its winding roads, its villages that nest along the streams, its peaked bridges with salmon jumping at the weir, its thatched cottages and flowering hedges. The chaffinch sings on the orchard bough in England now. I wish to see reapers at work in Surrey fields, to stride over the windy top of Devon, to cross Wiltshire when wind and rain and mist have brought the druids back to Stonehenge. At a crossroad, Stratford is ten miles off. Ragland's ancient towers peep from a wooded hill. Tintern or Glastonbury can be gained by night. Are not these names sweet upon the tongue? And I wish a black-timbered inn in which to end the day, with polished brasses in the tap and the smell of musty centuries upon the stairs. At the window of our room the cathedral spire rises above the rooks. There is no trolley-car or creaking of any wheel, and on the pavement we hear only the fall of feet in endless pattern. Day weaves in a hurrying mesh, but this is the quiet fabric of the night. I wish to walk from London to Inverness, to climb the ghostly ramparts of Macbeth's castle, to hear the shrill cry of Duncan's murder in the night, to watch for witches on the stormy moor. I shall sit on the bench where Johnson sat with Boswell on his journey to the Hebrides. I shall see the wizard of the north, lame afoot, walking in the shade of ruined Dryborough. With drunken Tam, I shall behold an Alloway Kirk, warlocks in advance. From the gloomy house of Shaw's and its broken tower, David Balfour runs in flight across the heather. Culloden echoes with the defeat of an outlaw prince. The stairs of Holyrood drip with Rizzio's blood. But also I wish to follow the Devon lanes, to rest in villages on the coast at the fall of day, when fishermen wind their nets, to dream of Arthur in his court on the rocks beyond Tintagel. Merlin lies in Wales with his dusty garments pulled about him, and his magic sleeps. 
But there is wind tonight in the noisy caverns of the sea, and Spanish pirates, dripping with the slime of a watery grave, bury their treasure when the fog lies thick. Thousands of years have peopled these English villages. Their pavements echo with the tread of kings and poets. Here is a sunny bower for lovers when the world was young. Bishops of the Roman Church. St. Thomas himself, in his robes pontifical, has walked through these broken cloisters. Here is the altar where he knelt at prayer when his assassins came. From that tower, Mary of Scotland looked vainly for assistance to gallop from the north. Here stretches the pilgrim's way across the downs of Surrey, worn and scratched by pious feet. From the west they came to Canterbury. The wind stirs the far-off traffic, and the mist covers the hills as with an ancient memory. How many thirsty elbows have rubbed this table in the forgotten years! How many feasts have come steaming from the kitchen when the London coach was in! That pewter cup, maybe, offered its eager pledge when the news of Agincourt was blown from France. Up that stairway Tom Jones reeled with sparkling canary at his belt. These cobbles clacked in the pretender's flight. Here is the chair where Falstaff sat when he cried out that the sack was spoiled with villainous lime. That signboard creaked in the tempest that shattered the armada. My fancy mingles in the past. It hears, in the inn-yard, the chattering pilgrims starting their journey. Here is the pardoner jesting with the merry wife of Bath, with his finger on his lips to keep their scandal private. It sees Dick Turpin at the crossroads with the loaded pistols in his boots. There is mist tonight on Bagshot Heath, and men in Kendall Green are out. And Fancy rebuilds a ruined castle, and lights the hospitable fires beneath its mighty cauldrons. It hangs tapestry on the empty walls, and, like a sounding trumpet, it summons up a gaudy company in ruff and velvet to tread the forgotten measures of the past. Let Wyoming go and hang itself in its muddy riding boots and khaki shirt. Let its tall horses leap upward and click their heels upon the moon. I am for England. It is my preference to land at Plymouth, and our anchor, if the captain is compliant, will be dropped at night in order that the Devon Hills, as the thrifty stars are dimmed, may appear first through the mists of dawn. If my memory serves, there is a country church with stone embattled tower on the summit above the town, and in the early twilight all the roads that climb the hills lead away to promised kingdoms. Drake, I assert, still bowls nightly on the quay at Plymouth, with pins that rattle in the windy season, but the game is done when the light appears. We clatter up to London. Paddington Station, or Waterloo, I care not. But for arrival, a rainy night is best, when the pavements glisten and the mad taxis are rushing to the theatres. And then, for a week, by way of practice and to test our boots, we shall trudge the streets of London the strand and the embankment. And certainly we shall explore the temple and find the sights of Blackfriars and the globe. Here, beyond this present brewery, was the bear pit. Tarleton's jest still sound upon the bank. A weary, once in this busy river, conveyed Sir Roger up to Vauxhall. Perhaps, here on the homeward trip, he was rejected by the widow. The dear fellow, it is recorded, out of sentiment merely, 
kept his clothes unchanged in the fashion of this season of his disappointment here also was the old bridge across the fleet here was dreary lane where garrick acted tender hearts they say in pit and stall fluttered to his romeo and sighed their souls across the candles on his muddy curb link boys waited when the fog was thick here the footman bawled for chairs but there are bookshops still in charing cross road and for frivolous moments haberdashery is offered in bond street and vaudeville in leicester square and then on a supreme morning we pack our rucksacks it was a grievous oversight the christian failed to tell us what clothing he carried in his pack we know it was a heavy burden for it dragged him in the mire but did he carry slippers to ease his feet at night and what did the partner put inside his wallet surely the wife of bath was supplied with a powder-puff and a fresh taffeta to wear at the journey's end i could indeed spare christian one or two of his encounters for knowledge of his wardrobe these homely details are of interest the mad knight of la mancha we are told mortgaged his house and laid out a pretty sum on extra shirts stevenson also tells us the exact gear that he loaded on his donkey but what did marco polo carry and munchausen and the wandering jew i have skimmed their pages vainly for a hint for myself i take an extra suit of underwear and another flannel shirt a pair of stockings a rubber cape of lightest weight that falls below the knees slippers a shaving kit and brushes I shall wash my linen at night and hang it from my window, where it shall wave like an admiral's flag to show that I sleep upon the premises. I shall replace it as it wears, and I shall take a book not to read, but to have ready on the chance. I once carried the Book of Psalms, but it was Nick Carter I read, which I bought in a tavern parlor fifteen pages missing from a fat lady who served me beer we run to the window for a twentieth time it has rained all night but the man in the lift was hopeful when he came up from breakfast we believe him as if he sat on a tower with a spyglass on the clouds we cherish his tip as if it came from aeolus himself holding the winds in leash and now a streak of yellowish sky london's substitute for blue shows in the west we pay our bill we scatter the usual silver several senators in uniform bow us down the steps we hail a bus in trafalgar square we climb to the top to the front seat with full prospect the haymarket sandwichmen with weary step announce a vaudeville we snap our fingers at so stale an entertainment there are flower girls in piccadilly circus regent street we pass the marble arch near which cutthroats were once hanged on the three-legged mare of tyburn hammersmith brentford the bus stops it is the end of the route we have ridden out our sixpence we climb down we adjust our packs and shoestrings the road to the western country beckons my dear sir perhaps you yourself have planned for a landelet this summer and an english trip you have laid out two swift weeks to make the breathless round you journey from london to bristol in a day another day and you will climb out stiff of leg among the northern lakes if then as you loll among the cushions lapped in luxury pink and soft 
if then you see two men with sticks in hand and packs on shoulder know them for ourselves we are singing on the roads to windsor to salisbury to stonehenge to the hills of dorset to lyme regis to exeter and the devon moors it was a shepherd who came with a song to the mountain top the sun shone the bees swept past me singing and i too sang shouted world world i am coming end of chapter two